Hi everyone, my name is João and I'm your host of the Software Crafts podcast. Today with me I have Peter Madison. He's a coach and consultant with over 20 years of experience in helping organizations improve and thrive. Welcome Peter, thanks for your time to be with us today. Well thank you, it's a pleasure to be here. Cool. So today we have a very short, but I think will be deep, uh, heuristic, or in this case pattern, and it is measure what matters. So what are your experiences with this uh, heuristic slash pattern? So, I mean, it's, a, it's an interesting one. Uh, outside of John Dewar's book on by that title and OKRs and all the wonderful pieces around there, I, I think one of the things you wanted to explore today was the whole field around uh, how we manage metrics, how do we come up with what we measure, what's the impact on the organizations and the way that we create and uh, how how we use them um, to guide what we do and the work that we do and the way that we uh, act and respond. That sound good? Yes, it sounds. It sounds. So let me challenge you. So did you observe or experience in your career uh, companies or, or teams that go too far and try to measure everything and get flooded with information? I have seen that, yes. it's uh, As much as being flooded with information, it's having the wrong information. So there's, uh, there's a quote from... Um, uh, what's uh, Douglas Hubbard? I think it's uh, uh, don't uh, measure unless you know how to respond to a metric. So there's we run into this problem where, on the one side, um, I like what I like to say is we want to measure everything, but not everything is a metric. The things that are the metrics are the things that we're going to use to be able to make decisions. Uh, we need to have the information available should we want to be able to make a decision from it. Uh, but if we drown ourselves with looking at all of the things we possibly could measure, then we'll find ourselves lost in all of the data and it'll become almost impossible to make any kind of decision from it. Very interesting thought. And uh, so I see that you're referring to things. Okay, store the data, have these metrics available when we have questions versus look at them when we uh, have questions. So... And based on this assumption, what are your processes or, or techniques to, to, to think about these metrics, metrics that matters? So there's, and I think some of this comes from my background, which has a, a lot of infrastructure and operations experience. So when I think of measuring everything, I want to know, should I need to be able to get the information? I want to know what's happened on all of the systems and all of my environments, but I don't want to look at it every day in, day out. I just want to tell me when something actually goes wrong, when the thing that occurs that I need to be aware of happened. But I do want to be able to get to that information should I need it. So I want to make sure that it's available to me. But I'm not using it to make decisions unless I need to be able to make decisions. So there's a slight variance in how you look at it from a, an operational perspective. Uh, so there's th that, that piece of it is probably where I'm coming at when I think of these in the two different ways. When I'm looking at how do we design metrics, I was having a conversation yesterday uh, with somebody about this. The... One of the methods that we use is something we call GQM, a gold question metric. Design what the goal that you're trying to achieve is, work out what questions you're looking to be able to answer, and then design the metric that will allow you to answer those questions. And then 
look at, well, what happens when I game that metric? Because we know it's going to get gained. So what happens if I get more of that? And start to ask, um, ask those questions of yourself and then see what happens as you go through that loop. And that's uh, one of the common sort of methods that we use to try and work out uh, uh, what metrics would make sense in this particular instance. Now, there's a lot of other places that we can go from there. Uh, so where would you like to go? <laughs> Yeah, so this is really a good start. Um, where I will like to go, so uh, we are both technical, right? Connected to operations and systems and codes and all of that type of stuff. Uh, and sometimes we work on bubbles, right? But our technical <laughs> bubble and software that we create and operate exists for a reason. The company has a purpose, sells a product or a service. How you go about to connect these metrics to, to KPIs or OKRs so the, the decision-making process is effective as possible? There's, there's a couple of um, examples there. When we look at uh, what are the KPIs that we're looking to measure the organization against and what are the things that we're doing within the technology space that will potentially influence those so that we can look at where will these two things potentially be linked. And the easiest way to, to find those out is to go and ask, which is something that a lot of technologists I found forget to go and do. It's like, we don't know what they want. Well, have you asked them? That's usually my first question. It's, uh, the, so going and uh, saying, right, okay, so how does the organization determine whether or not it's going to be successful or not? How is it measuring its progress? What are the metrics it's put into place? What are then the things we do as we peel back the layers that we're doing to measure both our success and progress? Are we doing the things we need to do uh, in order to be good at delivering uh, technology? And how do those then relate to what the organization uh, needs in order for it to be able to deliver value? Cool. It's It's resonates with me and I, I was writing that to be in the episode description go and ask it's always a, a good one <laughs> and um, taking another dimension uh, we go and ask uh, how you go about the size of the organization because I imagine that this can be pretty straightforward with an organization with 100 to 200 people but if we have 2000 how we go about these types of organizations? When do you stop? So it's you're always going to have a, uh, at whatever the size of the organization, there's always going to be something that's being set out. And uh, very often at the very top, even a large organization is being broadcast to the organization at the town hall to say, hey, this is how we're going to determine our success. This is what we measure against. And I've, I've worked in very, very large organizations and much, much smaller organizations. So I've seen both ends of the, the spectrum. Uh, there's, when we're looking at those different layers, there's also this piece of understanding where is the appetite for that measurement of that data? Who do I, where, where am I working and who do I need to satisfy with the information that I'm collecting and radiating uh, so that it's visible and available? Uh, I may not be able to, depending on where I've come in, trace this all the way through the organization, but I need to at least be aware of what is it that I'm expected to be influencing. And really from wherever I am, what are the people one to two layers above me? What are they looking for? How do I show them that we're, we're delivering to the things that we need to? And how do, uh, as importantly, looking the other way, uh, what do the teams need to be able to measure their 
their own success, their own learning, their own ability to move forward? What are they going to get from this? Because uh, just measuring for the sake of measuring doesn't really do anybody any good. So. That That's true. That's true. And um, I do believe that you were going towards, I will so-called management styles, right? Are we having managers that are able to create these environments where, where people and teams can get a direction versus uh, micromanagement or those type of goals that don't have boundaries. Do you also advise on that space when you see teams that are confused because uh, things are not cleared or, or, or the goal setting is too stretched out? Yes, yeah. I've. Uh, it's one of the main things that I... I generally do with organizations is I help them with uh, problems where they've tried uh, to adopt um, a particular set of practices or they've gone about something. They've Somebody's picked up a book and said, hey, we should do it this way. And they bought everybody a copy and they've gone and tried to follow everything by rote. And they've, uh, they maybe brought somebody in who's then taught them a set of ways of doing things. And they've kind of said, yes, we've done it. And then they haven't seen or got the results they want because they haven't really actually looked at, well, why are we doing this? What are the reasons behind it? How is this actually driving uh, progress? And this is this is where it ties into measures because that's a huge part of that is like, how are we telling whether we've been successful or not? What are we using to be able to determine uh, what the right thing to do is? Uh, are we learning? Are we actually looking at the practices that we've put into place and seeing if they're serving us? Are they actually helping us um, with what we're trying to achieve overall as an organization? True, yeah. So the, the, the context matters, right? So um, let's make these tangible. Let me challenge you. <laughs> because sure. this, this uh, pattern came from the cloud native transformation. So uh, going to the cloud, it's pretty normal nowadays. <laughs> Do you observe organizations that went to the cloud and, and get stuck? when their metrics didn't work from the data center context to the cloud context? And if you saw that, what are the things that we can help them or, or the tips that we can give to, to organizations on this uh, journey to unblock that situation? So the, the biggest mistake I see in organizations doing a cloud transformation or a cloud adoption is that they don't take the time to understand and measure what they they currently have and what that would, should look like in the cloud. And because they don't go through that exercise, they do things like cloud is cheaper. It's a cost savings tool. I'm going to pick all of this stuff up. I'm just going to do straight IaaS. I'm going to take these exactly the same servers and infrastructure and ways of running things. And I'm just going to run it exactly the same in the cloud. And then a few months later, they get hit with a massive bill. And I've seen organizations do this at scale where it's cost them millions and millions of dollars because they haven't taken the, the work to plan that out and observe and understand what, what they should be measuring. So there, there's a number of metrics that they, they need to be paying attention to there. But there's this piece up front, which is looking at how do I understand how the things I have today behave on premise? What is my expectation of them performing in the cloud? Which of these things do I need to keep? Which of them do I need to re-platform? Which of these do I need to re-architect? Which of these do I need to uh, just retire out of my environment at all? What are the things I'm going to do to measure the overall 
and goals. Like what am I trying to achieve by adopting cloud versus um, a, a mistaken set of goals? Like, Hey, I'm just going to save money. <laughs> it's like actually more likely what's going to happen is that as you move, you're going to start to incur costs at two layers. You'll incur costs from the continued maintenance of what you continually have on premise and start to also incur costs for what you start to run in cloud. Then this will create a bubble. And you, if you haven't planned for that and understand what's going to happen, you, you're going to have a lot of money hitting your, your books and you've got to now start to look at, well, how long can I maintain this for? How can I drive that curve down? And the way of doing that is to do some proper planning up front around how do I treat each of these things? Not everything should be treated equally. When you start to run them in the cloud, they are going to behave very differently. Uh, how do I now know which ones of these things should I actually move to the cloud and which ones should I perhaps keep on premise because they're not going to really benefit uh, from cloud infrastructure or anything like that. Yeah, thanks Thanks for bringing these clear uh, examples. And you mentioned a couple of things that are close to my heart, namely the re-architecture and planning, right? People usually tend to go too fast and uh, figure out once we cross the bridge. Do you think that we are relearning uh, the art of software architecture and solution architecture? Uh, it's popping up once again, or we are not there yet? That's an interesting question. Uh, in what do you mean by relearning in this instance? Yeah. So uh, what I observe is that we came from a very structured approach. IBM in the 80s that they designed everything to, to, to do the key in the database. To people interpret the agile movement. Oh, we don't need architecture. We don't need any design up front. It's just go and do code, right? Go to the other extreme. And then when technology evolves, right, namely cloud democratize the access to resources and, and other types of resources just pop up out of nothing for a very commodity price, uh, people start looking again, oh, perhaps the way that we did architecture, not in the extreme, might have some value. That is what I'm talking about, relearning mm -hmm. all of these patterns and, 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 and behaviors uh, over in that area. Yeah, I've, I would agree. I've definitely seen a resurgence of how do we take those architectural concepts and have just enough architecture embedded into the way that our software delivery teams and how we develop solutions uh, are done because uh, you, you need... Uh, a set of at least principles that we're going to abide by as an organization so that we understand what are we, we building to and organizations that don't go through that and uh, everybody just runs off in a million different directions. Uh, and we go, oh, we're just going to grab this service over here or we're just going to start to consume all of these packages from over there. But if you don't have a, a common understanding of where all of that stuff's coming from and what are we going to, which is what architecture can help you with from the overall system, understanding what does that end-to-end -end system roughly going to look like, and then you start to run into problems, especially as you scale. Um, 
And we can't, the other side of this too, is that the architecture itself needs to remain up for grabs. So it's, there's, there, we are treating it very differently to the way that it was treated, as you were describing back in the 80s and 90s, where it was like, this is our static arch, uh, architecture. The architects in their ivory tower would dictate what everything's going to look like for the next 10 years and away we go. It's, uh, it's now more about if we, we've got a set of architectural principles that we're going to work towards, we're going to have architectural frameworks that we'll work within. And as a, as a group, we need to make sure we're constantly revisiting those, but we need to ensure that there is a common understanding that, yes, this is what we're aiming for. And if you want to change that, it's okay to be able to put your hand up and say, yeah, okay, we, this isn't going to service. We need to now look at this and maybe change it and put it, go back to a different architectural framework. Maybe we need to throw everything out that we've done there and we need to start again and look at a different way of doing this because we're going to hit some kind of roadblock. And if we're lucky, we can do that ahead of time before we hit the roadblock. But sometimes, for example, a, a pandemic hits and all of a sudden somebody realizes we, the architecture we had is not going to scale up to the 10,000 more users we now have because we now have to be all digital, whereas before we were only partially uh, that way and that kind of thing. And... Not to mention, of course, new technologies like serverless, and uh, which is still relatively new. But this architectural concepts around um, the I'm going to glue together a bunch of API um, SaaS services and build out my solution like that. I can build my entire business based on that. Um, at a small scale, but then you'll start to hit limits as you grow. And this is where we see things like. Heroku, for example, is awesome. It's fantastic and it's a great place to start. I don't need a data center. I can build out a whole ton of complex infrastructure there until I start to hit limits. But I have to actually get fairly big before I hit those limits. So that's not, it's a good problem to have, right? And so there's the, um, the Yagni type principle from uh, XP there. It's like, you ain't going to need it yet. What I need to have just enough to get me to where I need to get to the next decision. Um, and then I tend to talk about things like options and how do we how do we know we have enough enough information to make the decision we need to be able to make today, which brings us back to metrics. So <laughs> I think that we are going in circles, and you touch uh, another one that is options, and this is very funny because uh, a few hours ago I was in a call with Jim Bloom, so he talks oh, also yeah. about yes. lots of options. Yeah, I love this stuff. He's a how do you keep the options open? from an architecture and also connected to metrics, what are your practices? So I take a very outcomes focused approach. Um, one, one of the things that, uh, well, one of the things that people hire me for a lot of the times is, uh, is this get out of the weeds type piece. It's like, how do we make everything visible? How do we, but how do we start before even that with what are the outcomes we want independently of the solutions so that we can focus on that so that we now know what we're aiming for and then we can find what we need as a solutions to solve it um, after the fact. And uh, so a lot of the conversations I go in and I help people with are get them out of the weeds, get them away from looking at the trees. How have we got so close to the, to the solution that we're solving? We're married to that solution. Okay, is that solution still serving us? Can we step back and take a broader picture and say, Okay, is, is this something? It is? Great. Let's continue down that path. And if it isn't, well, how might we be able to pivot or change and still continue? Or are we at the point that we can just see we're going to hit a brick wall if we continue down this path and we need to do a major pivot to something else that's going to better serve us moving forward? 
Does, does that answer your question or did I keep it too vague? Uh, well, <laughs> answered my question and I'm going to uh, uh, try to trigger and poke you. Do you feel that the industry is moving towards outcomes rather than outputs? Uh, yes, I know that's uh, it's what I sell. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm a, I'm a big fan, and uh, when we we talk about references uh, later, but they, yeah, I'm uh, I'm very much driven from an outcomes perspective. Uh, the focus on the outcomes first, um, or as your Simon Sinek uh, golden circle, start with the why. It's the, why are we doing this? What is the purpose behind it? Use that as the the driver. Uh, so it can be our guiding light as we uh, determine what are the actions we need to take to achieve those outcomes. And, and do you feel that companies that go on that journey rather than focus on outputs, uh, micromanaging and command and control going more for outcome oriented, maybe mission control, do you feel that people are accepting, especially at management layers, that they don't have control, they can influence? That's a, a very broad question. <laughs> the, uh, there's, I've seen organizations that adopt this um, have some success in the areas that they adopted in, but it takes time. And uh, it takes time as well to get the buy-in as you go up the, the organizational ladder. Uh, it's this age-old problem of uh, what you got what got you there is what's helping you succeed, so you'll tend to behave in those same fashions. So you're now, uh, to change the mindset, to change the way that you're looking at solving problems, you need to have the right incentives to do so. And in larger organizations, that uh, often gets very clouded because the the incentives being driven down from the top, even if the right words are being saying, are not necessarily translating well through the, the layers of management to create the kinds of outcomes they want. So even as you start to adopt uh, different practices at the bottom, and th this came up in one of the communities the other day, a, a Kanban coach um, who was working with a team in an organization and he was coming back and saying, well, I can see what needs to happen and I need to change it all, but I, I need to make these changes. And I'm going, yeah, but think about what your sphere of influence is. You're operating with one team at the bottom of this massive organization, all these levels hierarchy. Your sphere, you can concentrate on your sphere of influence where you have it. And you can start to generate influence by showing success. But it'll take you time to be able to do the kind of changes that you're describing because you don't have the influence to make the changes to the decisions when the way he was describing it, what he wanted to do would have meant he had to go like three or four levels up in the hierarchy. And it's like you're from where you are at the moment, you, you don't have the influence, but you can work on building that influence to be able to make those kind of changes. But it often depends where you've come into the organization, the level of conversation you're going to be able to have and how comfortable you are with being able to move between those levels and the nature of the conversations you'll be having. Um, and are you able to take it from the, hey, this is what my team needs to succeed up to, hey, this is what the organization needs to succeed. Very interesting con to connect these, these two dimensions and also talking about time. So the, the challenge now, because this is a podcast about heuristics and patterns, in your experiences, uh, organizations that are able to achieve this faster, going from outputs to outcomes, what are the patterns that you can think that they adopt or the heuristics that they adopt to be faster versus other organizations? So the... In terms of lightweight frameworks, things like OKRs, which we 
briefly mentioned before is a it's one of the most popular ones out there at the moment and, and yeah, it, it, it's very tricky to actually adopt in a way that um really has the impact a lot of people put lip service to it but they never manage to really drive the benefits from it um because as with a lot of these things it's it's easy to say and harder to do uh, there's there's things like uh, and a friend of mine who i know has been on this podcast for uh, steve Pereira has um He's a big fan of the V2Mom one, which is Salesforce's framework that they use, which kind of adds uh, another layer of a method to the uh, to the OKR type framework and gives you a, a little bit uh, more structure to like, how are we actually going to make those things happen rather than just, hey, this is how we're going to measure it, which is what the OKR piece of it gives you. Um, so those, those patterns, though, when done well, they can at least get people to start to think in the right way. Um, and having the right types of conversations around, hey, we realize that we want to start to align in a different fashion. Um, as long as we don't allow OKRs just to become another form of uh, KPI, and to, basically this is how we're going to measure everybody, um, which is this is what we want to be able to achieve to get to these um, these objectives, right? And uh, that's how we start to change the ways of of looking at it. Um, does that make sense? I, yeah, I do believe so. Right? It's it's about discovering what works in different contexts, and I can see um, a connection by your answer with a different perspective or the same perspective from a different guest of this uh, podcast, Peter Kvua. And he also mentioned that uh, we cannot turn OKRs into the new managed by objectives, right? Mm-hmm. So it's it's yeah, it's very very interesting. And um, you are in the industry for for quite a time, and uh, in this time, our industry changed a lot, right? Just a sing simple fact that uh, we went to the cloud and things became democratized, make things easier. What do you foresee for our software industry for the next 10 years? What do you hope that will or can happen? Uh, I think that uh, the commoditization is obviously uh, is a key part of it, but some of the new things, uh, some of the promises of stuff like uh, the no-code environments, we've had that kind of thing for a long time, uh, but it's becoming more of a reality than it's ever been before. Uh, if you look at, uh, and Amazon released this a little while ago, but they're like their light speed um, type capabilities of um, where you can take a series of serverless type commands and then glue them together. So now a business user could potentially just go and say, I want, I want something that uh, grabs a PDF from a site and puts this customer's data, takes this, strings it, and glue all those different pieces together. And now they've got an entire working system without ever really having to code anything. You can build out your entire business um, through a set of APIs in that manner. Uh, there's still a need to have a, a technical understanding of how some of these pieces work together. But we're moving into a way of being able to consume some of these services uh, in a way that allows you to get up and running very, very quickly and start to to learn, um, which is obviously one of the fundamental pieces. So even if this isn't how we start to run 
likely as we start to scale, maybe we can't easily glue these pieces together in a cost-effective manner. So you'll hit a point where we say, well, this is all very well, but if I can't get that SaaS service over there to give me some better pricing for what I'm consuming, then I'm better off building this service myself because I really only need one portion of what they're doing. And this is one of the age-old problems of software development, right? It's uh, it's back to that yagging piece, but it's the, uh, if I only really need this one tiny sliver of functionality, but I find myself paying for all of these other bits of functionality that get lumped in with it, then is it cheaper for me then to go build a single slither of functionality that does the one thing that I need, which I can then run for less by putting it on a cloud provider on a serverless instance or something, or whichever one I decide to pick and or however I decide to run it. And that might be easier to do. Of course, there's a overhead of now I need people to code and manage and maintain and operate and look after all of that for me um, as, I, as I scale and work out what all that looks like. But if I aggregate that, is that a more cost-effective way than me going and consuming that service from somewhere else? And so you start to look at... Um, as I build out my entire end-to-end solution, how am I measuring success? What does it look like? Am I bringing the right pieces in? Uh, The three horizons method is quite a good one of that. Is this core to what I do? Is it something that uh, is up and coming? And when am I going to revisit it? Uh, Or is it something that, hey, this is part of my IP. I need to do this myself Um, because I'm going to be able to add additional value if I do it myself that I won't if I go and consume somebody else's. Um, I actually... We've avoided the other side of a lot of what the work I do, which is the whole GRC piece of it, because <laughs> that then takes me to thinking about that, because now if where does all my data go? If I've scattered it to the four winds across all of these SaaS services, how can I actually guarantee that I've looked after my customer's data? Have I properly managed that? Where does it reside? Um, which is then a different problem entirely. <laughs> so It is it is indeed data residence. Um, it is a all different class of problems. And um, you start with uh, the low-code slash no-code types of platforms, and indeed, uh, Siemens bought Mendix, Microsoft is going there, Amazon is going there, so uh, OutSystems is growing. How do you see these affecting traditional, more traditional organizations that build software for ages? Will they be able to adapt, or a new strategy in town will push them out? Uh, Well, they're going to get, as they have been for a long time, uh, nibbled at the edges. Um, Regulation and compliance is one of the things that holds them back, uh, especially where I am in Toronto, uh, where it's a big financial services hub and banks are uh, obviously an easy target of that discussion. Um, But it's other industries as well. Healthcare, for example, is a lot of... um, conversations in that space obviously at the moment uh, around where does the data go how do we manage things like privacy um, properly all of these kinds of conversations um, there's there's a space where a lot of the things we've been able to achieve over the uh, last 20 years and as transformation has come from uh, the adoption of things like open source and the open source has allowed a lot of the things that were big heavyweight um, software systems that had to be bought from uh, the likes of IBM, not to just intentionally throw them under the bus, but they do own a lot of that software that's in those companies. Um, They 
and moving to a more open source, easily more easily consumable. I can download it, try it, test it, see if it works for me, and then build the solution out from there, uh, which allows us to go much faster. And the same goes for being able to consume these SaaS services. If I want to try something out and see how it works, I can find something that is what I need, spin it up and see, does this, does this do what I need? And I can learn and see, is this going to be applicable to my needs? And then I can potentially bring that back into the organization workout. Now that I've learned that, how can I make that work within my environment with the systems that I have and integrate it the way that I need to integrate it? So there's that side of it. Um, taking apart the huge complex uh, monoliths and the massive organizations that support them uh, is, is very difficult and takes a very, very long time. And uh, all of these companies, all of them, are on that journey. Uh, and they are all having multiple kicks at the can. I know of one of the major banks right here that's on its fourth kick at uh, yet another agile transformation, um, which I would predict as much as I uh, love predicting things, but uh, I would suggest that it's going to be about as successful as the previous three attempts um, because I don't think they've necessarily got it in their heads yet that the one of the key fundamental underlying principles of all of this is the inspect and adapt loops that come in. Whereas what they want to come in and say is, here's my silver bullet. I'm just going to lay this over, change everybody's job titles, move a few benches around and uh, expect everything to be different. And it takes more work than that. And it's the heavy lifting of, hey, we need to start to talk about things in a different way. We need to change our language. We need to give autonomy in teams, teams that have for so long not had that autonomy that they don't necessarily even want it. Uh, so you've got, a, you've got a lot of challenges in that space. Um, it's, uh, I, I could tell one more little story to give you an, an example at a bottom layer of, a, of that. I was helping... Uh, doing some consulting into a large bank and uh, I got dragged into doing this regulatory uh, project where they had to hit a particular target and we had to move some things out into the cloud, which they had never really done successfully for one of these workloads. And so I, I helped them get everything going and we, we successfully did it. We got started in the cloud, but there was this moment where there was the one SME who knew this one piece of software of this legacy system, this uh, legacy SCM. She was the only person who knew this. Nobody else, in, like the, the only person who knew this. And I, I said, okay, so his design, does design look right to you? Uh, and she said, well, I can't sign off on that. I need a, um, I can't remember what they called it, a, a TQA or T. Uh, technical design architecture or something, a TDA or whatever the acronym was in that organization. For, I need to have somebody sign off on this before I will do this. And you're the only person who knows this. Nobody else here has a clue as to what this is. Why do you not feel comfortable with it? Well, no, I can't because I have to have, can I do it? She said, Oh, are you okay if I sign off on it and then you'll be okay? She said, yeah. So, okay. It's this, there's, there's this need for after so long of, even though you're, they're the SME and they're the ones who know this the best, they've had so long of being told what to do that they don't feel comfortable doing anything without having somebody that they can sort of, that they can blame or they can say that this is the person who told me to do this. It's okay. Um, and so that you have a lot of, 
you have a lot of that to overcome in those large organizations. So as much as we, we try to make those changes, we bring in the new technologies, we bring in the new ways of, of working, it, it takes time and it take, it's going to take a long time for people to switch from that uh, old way of working and that mindset into a different way of working. And I don't think we necessarily give them enough time. Definitely. Time seems the common denominator in uh, what we have been discussed on these uh, episodes, right? Uh, connected to, to human behavior, right? Uh, which is very, very interesting. So um, with this, let's uh, get our audience thinking about more patterns where time can have a huge influence. And I have one last question because we are uh, at the end of our episode. What are the resources that you recommend to the audience? Books, um, podcasts, blogs, videos, whatever they can consume in their own time after the, the episode? Sure. So if we're talking about metrics, um, the two of the favorite books I have on, on that would be um, uh, Douglas Hubbard, who I mentioned at the start there, the How to Measure Anything. That's a great book, which has some wonderful information around the, uh, the subtitle as the uh, Finding the Value of Intangibles in Business. Uh, and it's it, to get you to start to think differently about what are the statistics and metrics that you're measuring and what are, how are they serving you. Um, another classic one is Escape Velocity um, by Doc Norton, um, which is the, one of the things, and we, we didn't touch on this because we kind of went up rather than down, but it's uh, one of the other common mistakes that I see in organizations is where they, they adopt agile practices into their teams and then start measuring velocity and comparing it across teams, which is, uh, yes, uh, from you shaking your head, it's, uh, that's exactly one of the worst possible things you can see. It's, uh, it, it's, it's horrible. Just don't do it. <laughs> anyway, an escape velocity, um, exactly as the, uh, the title says, it's all about better metrics for agile teams. So that's a great uh, place. And, uh, and if you want a good presentation video on that, my uh, business partner, Hino Marks, does a talk that you can find uh, on this topic around uh, better outcomes. And he'll talk about uh, how things like throughput and other things are really good. Um, one of the other great resources that I find very useful, and I'll, we can put this link in there too, is um, Troy McGuinness's uh, company, whose name escapes right at the moment. He has a, uh, a focus objective. There's, there's a GitHub repository he has with a whole ton of spreadsheets in it. And those spreadsheets are for doing uh, defect tracking, cycle time analysis, and all of these other pieces. And you just put the information, it generates all the graphs. And they're a fantastic starting point. I've used them in multiple organizations to um, get teams started with being able to see what they have. Because very often they, they have some data. We can grab that data, dump it into a spreadsheet, and then see what comes out at the other end and have a discussion. And so that's very valuable too. Yeah. Uh, thanks for these uh, resources and uh, a few more tips. Uh, I will make sure that they are on the description of the episode. Uh, and with this, we get to the end uh, of, of, of this episode. And I want once again to thank you for your time to be with us today. Thank you very much. I really appreciated the questions and the conversation. It's great. Thank you. Yes, it was. You can follow us on Twitter at 
S-Crafts Podcast. Visit our website softwarecraftspodcast.com or visit our page on LinkedIn. Hope to see you next week. Thank you.